Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, writer Ashley Seaford grew up knowing that her father was in prison, but not knowing why. And as she shares in her new memoir, Somebody's Daughter, she found out about her father's crime, rape, just months after she had been sexually assaulted. Ford grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we'll talk with her about what she's learned and lived through on her journey to becoming a celebrated writer and TV and podcast host. Join us. We'll get started right after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ashley Ford's father was in prison for 30 years from the time that she was a year old. Ford's mother worked extremely hard to support her and her three siblings, but she could be rough and cruel. And when Ford was 13, she was raped. All of this Ford shares in her brilliant new memoir titled Somebody's Daughter. And her memoir is as much about these things as it is about joy and hope and love. Ashley Ford, welcome to Forum. Hi, Mina. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're so glad to have you. I have heard you say that you want to put more love out into the world. And and why? Where does that desire come from? Um, just balance. <laughs> I think, uh, I think that, uh, I like the idea of a, a better balance of, um, love in the world. I also think that my personal definition of love is something that spreads out beyond you. Um, it's not something that, uh, you hoard or that you think you can give too much of it. It's, it's infinite. So, Wanting to put more love in the world is also about wanting to receive more love, wanting to, you know, feel that connection in all of us. Yeah. And you are loved well these days, it sounds like. I am. I am. I'm extremely well loved, you know, and that started with me. <laughs> um, it started with me suspecting that maybe I, I deserved and or was even just worthy of love that seemed spectacular or, you know, unconditional, like maybe I actually am worthy of that. And then I am lucky enough to have had people show up in my life and 
reflect that back to me and show me that I, I am lovable um, just as I am, like all people are. And yeah, that's, um, I'm really, really lucky to have that be my life. Um, I'm surrounded by love most of the time. Yeah, there really is something kind of amazing when someone holds up a mirror of love, you know, that meaning that you can see yourself through another's eyes and know it's accurate because it's based on love. But I am so struck by you using the word suspecting that you were worthy of love. And you say suspecting because it wasn't necessarily something that you were told or felt for much of your life, it sounds like. Well, no, I, I wasn't. But I think I was shown a kind of uh, attempt at love from people who were trying to love me well, but I don't think they had any great examples of how to love anybody well. And I don't think that anything in our culture or society would have encouraged them to look for it on their own. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a really tricky situation when you're like, I, I know that I was not loved well, but I also know that the people who did not love me well um, were true. I, I know that they didn't have access to what I have access to now in order to learn that love for myself. One of those people being your mother? One of those people absolutely being my mother. Um, my mom was given the impression at one of the most cruel and vulnerable times in her life that she was on her own in most ways, in all the most important ways. And she, I believe, carries shame from that that doesn't actually belong to her, but that nobody ever would have told her didn't belong to her. Mm. And I think she attempted to pass a lot of that down to me and I think a lot of it succeeded and I was lucky to be able to find my way out of that. Yeah, as much as your book is about um, your father being in prison for a long time, it is also so much about your relationship with your mother as well and how complicated it is. And you know, your mother is very vigilant and protective of you and works very hard to make ends meet and raise you while at the same time being this source of pain and the pain could be both emotional and physical. But as I read your memoir, it's, I'm all, I was always struck by how protective you are of her as well, that you intuitively seem to know that she's endured and enduring so much and that she's she's lonely. And I was actually wondering if you might be willing to read a passage from your book, Ashley Ford. Um, it was one where you talk about uh, an incident with a man that your mother is dating. Um, I don't know if there's anything you wanna say about it before you read it, but. Um... Yeah, um, I'll just say that, you know, after my father was incarcerated, my mom was 22 years old um, with suddenly two kids all on her own. And she was trying to put her life back together. And, you know, especially in that time and in the place that I grew up, that looked like um, finding someone and not just finding someone to love you, but someone to settle down with you. Um, and this is sort of my view 
of what was going on in my mom's life when she met someone and was trying to make it work with them. Sometimes my mother needed me to disappear. She needed her life back after my father's arrest and this new person seems like a good way to get it. He was nice enough, though his background with women was messy, according to my grandmother. He was always assuring my mother that he was done with someone they only ever seemed to refer to as her. Sometimes they would fight about her. Once they fought so bad, he swung a bag of frozen bread at my mother, missed and caught me in the face. There was a sudden burst of confusing pain, then blood shot out of my nose like it was running away from me. It landed on my shirt and remained there while we all stared. My mother dragged me into the bathroom, sat me on the toilet and began sticking wads of tissue up my nose. I didn't cry. I was scared that my bloody nose was about to break something between them and I didn't want my mother to be alone or angry. Plus, I liked him. He was kind to me and always kept king-size candy bars in the bottom of his refrigerator. I insisted I was fine and it didn't hurt. My mother was already crying and yelling in the direction of her boyfriend. Look, look what you did to my baby. She continued jamming toilet paper up my nose and it was starting to hurt. My mother, who only cried like the tears were being ripped from her face, blubbered while she yelled at her boyfriend. Something was happening between her and this man. Maybe something to do with her. I didn't know. But I didn't want my mother to cry anymore. I hated it when she cried or yelled. I hated it when she was unhappy. I let her stick tissues into my nose as long as she wanted, and I didn't complain. Her tears told me she was afraid, and I did not want her to be afraid for me. Standing just outside the bathroom door, her boyfriend buried his face in his palms, then thrust them back into his pockets. He looked sad when he looked at my mother and even sadder when he looked at me. He crouched down in front of me, took my hand in his and met my eyes with his own. I'm sorry, he said. I'm so sorry. It's okay, I'm okay. He was looking right at me, but it didn't feel like he was speaking to me. I didn't know any adults who apologized to children. And so his apology felt as wrong to me as my mother's tears. I didn't want anyone to have to be sorry to me. I didn't want to make anyone cry. I wanted to make it all stop. It's okay, I said, I forgive you. It was the first time I remember saying that to someone. He would come first in the long line of men who would seek to make amends with me. He came before I realized I had the choice not to forgive, especially when the person offering the apology didn't seem sorry. It still felt good to be apologized to, no matter who it was meant for. Up until that point, no one had ever apologized for hitting me. I liked the way it made me feel, like I was worth feeling sorry over after someone hurt me, even if they didn't mean it. 
like it mattered that I hurt. My mother never apologized. Ashley Seaford reading from her memoir, Somebody's Daughter. There's so much in that passage that you read, but one of the first things that I was struck by was just how much detail uh, you were able to remember of that moment. And I wonder as you revisited moments like this to write your book, if you were surprised or struck by the effect it had on you? Oh, absolutely. I thought, you know, these are memories I've had and held on to for years. These things have been in my mind for so long. I've been in therapy for so long. There's just no way that writing these things down is going to be much different or feel much different than this does right now. And I was wrong. (laughs) I was absolutely wrong. Um, Talking about these things was incredibly hard, actually. Writing about them became incredibly hard. Um, I had to try different forms of therapy. I had to um, go away to a place that I called trauma camp uh, that helped me just process some of these stories and um, some of these memories so that I could write about them as truthfully and as effectively as I wanted to be able to. Um, so I, I don't think books are therapy. You know, some people say that quite often, like, write, like writing a book is my therapy. It's so cathartic. And, you know, sure, I guess it can be cathartic, but this book was not therapy for me. This book put me into therapy in a way that helped me um, become a better version of myself. Hmm. Well, that's a really lovely way of putting it. We're talking with Ashley Ford, her new memoir, Somebody's Daughter. Ford has written or guest edited for The Guardian, Elle Magazine, BuzzFeed Slate, Teen Vogue, New York Magazine, Allure, Marie Claire, The New York Times, and more. And if you have questions or comments for Ashley C. Ford, you can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, that number, 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with writer and podcast host Ashley C. Ford about her new memoir, Somebody's Daughter. Ford has hosted the Chronicles of Now podcast, the HBO Companion podcast, Lovecraft Country Radio, and has written for numerous publications. And uh, we're inviting you, our listeners, if you want to join the conversation with Ashley Ford, to do so by calling 866-733-6786. You can also email us, forum at kqed.org, and you can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Just before the break, Ashley Ford, we were talking about just how (laughs) writing this book, as you said, put you in therapy. And without asking you to divulge some of the hardest realizations that you had to work through with your therapist, unless you want to. Um, one of the things that I was really struck by was when you talked about um, the fact that no one had ever apologized for hitting you, that you liked the way it made you feel like you were worth 
feeling sorry over that it mattered that you hurt. And one of the things that I thought about in terms of just the effect of having a parent who is this complicated mix of love and pain is it really does a number on your sense of self-worth, I feel like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially your sense of self-worth as a child, because all of the authority and control is, you know, it's seemingly imbued in just the fact that this person is older than you. Right. <laughs> Not that they care much about your well-being. It's just that they're responsible for you the way they're responsible for their car. You know, it's like, well, that's my car. If somebody came by and started banging on the window, you'd still yell like, hey, get away from my car. You don't have to like it, love it, or care for it very well for it to still feel like your property. And I think that's the way a lot of people see children and the way that they deal with children. Mm. Um, and that obviously doesn't put a lot of self-worth into a child. You think all of your self-worth comes essentially when you turn 18. And then you feel like a failure because you don't have all the answers at 18 that you thought would just come with adulthood because that's why everybody can tell you what to do, right? Because they're adults. <laughs> so true about, about just how impressionable those tender years are, the messages of those years. And it's reminding me of, there's this time when you get to leave home for a bit when you're a kid and you live in Missouri with your grandmother and you're reluctant to go back to live with your mom. So one day your grandmother digs a hole in your backyard in Missouri where garden snakes are, are slithering around and your grandmother pours lighter fluid into the hole and sets it on fire. And you notice that instead of these snakes sort of thrashing about this way and that, that they squeeze closer together. They, they intertwine with each other even tighter while burning to death. What was your grandmother trying to teach you in that moment? I believe what she was trying to teach me was that, you know, sometimes things go terribly. Sometimes the whole ship goes down. Sometimes everything falls apart and you don't have anywhere to go. You don't have anything to hold on to. Um, but if you hold on to your family, and you all go down together, that is a different experience. That is a, 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 morally, a morally sound experience. That's what you want, is that you just never let people go. You hold on to them, you, you take care of them because they're family. Um, and that is partly the message I got, you know, but the other, you know, as a child, I, I think part of the message where I filled in the blanks or came up with my own childlike rationale um, was to think that this was also to say that like you are knotted and, 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 and wrapped up with your family yes. and with your people in such a way that even if you were burning alive, you couldn't get away you wouldn't yes. be able to get away. I was so struck by that scene because it, it's sort of this incredible message of, you know, 
togetherness to some extent, but at the same time, mm -hmm. I couldn't help but be like, God, what kind of effect did that have on Ashley? And, and if that as an adult, you feel like was a healthy message for you, given what you were living through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the matriarch of my family who feels that way and who, you know, shows me something like that. And she's complicated in her own right. It's, it's, it's this idea, I think, that we have sometimes that a lot of adults seem to have um, that kids only think what you put into their heads that whatever you say, whatever explanation you give them, that is, that is what they think now, like that you have set them on a path, but they are whole separate people <laughs> and they're having their own thought processes. Yes. And it's not super important that they grasp exactly what you mean the first time you say it. What's super important is that they feel safe to ask you questions about what they don't understand and for clarification in the places that they're still struggling with. Right. Yeah. You know, there is this moment when it feels like you finally do get to feel the parental love that you craved. It's when you visit your dad in prison when you're in your mid twenties and you haven't visited him in 13 years. Um, could you describe what that was like for you? <laughs> it was mind-blowing and nerve-wracking. I was excited to see him. I was terrified to see him. I was worried I would do something wrong. Um, the process of visiting someone in prison is more delicate than I think people realize. And if you mess up anywhere along that process, or if a mistake has been made anywhere along that process, um, you could find yourself in a situation where you've driven hours and hours and hours to be able to see a loved one. And you can't because the person who dropped you off um, left you with a cell phone in your pocket. <laughs> and having a cell phone in the building at all is not allowed. Right. And so not only will you not be able to go back, but you also like won't be able to stay in the prison and you just have to call this person and say, I, I can't do it. You have to come get me and we have to leave. Oh, and that person is not allowed to stay in the parking lot. They have to go find somewhere else to go in the middle of nowhere because there's a prison right here. Um, and it's, it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible process. Um, but it's, it's amazing to get to see someone um, who, is by, <laughs> who is always excited to see you, <laughs> always. Yeah. Uh, you talk about how when you did see him, you know, he held his arms wide. He whispered that he loved you to you and you were able to tell him that you loved him too. And you also say as you embrace and feel like his little girl that you'd been waiting a long time to feel like somebody's daughter. So the title of your memoir comes in there as well. And one of the things that I was so amazed by was that it comes from someone who had been so absent, who had to be so absent from your life. 
and who committed a horrible crime, rape that you yourself was a, were a survivor of. And, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering how you worked through all of that. My dad's letters to me when I was very young, even before I could read, um, that told me I was the most beautiful girl in the world and I was brilliant and I was the best and all of that stuff um, were kind of the foundation of my self-esteem. And they were the first idea I had that um, maybe I was good and not good, like well-behaved necessarily, <laughs> but maybe something in me was, was still good, even if I wasn't always well-behaved, even if I couldn't maintain the kind of perfection that um, seemed to be expected of me in my daily life. And I thought that there was some magical connection between father and daughter, and he must know. He must know that there is something in me that's good. He must feel that about me. And because I didn't at that time um, feel that for myself, nor did I have uh, a whole lot of that being reflected back at me in a way uh, that could permeate my shell, uh, my dad was a source of self-worth for me, just like a uh, evidence <laughs> that I lit up somebody's face. Mm. Somebody in the world lit up when they saw me and did not seek first to critique me or to tell me what I could do or could have done better. There was someone in the world who would be happy just because I showed up, just because I existed. And that helped me deal with all the parts of my life that made me feel like that wasn't the case. I wanna, in addition to asking listeners what questions or comments they have for you, also ask uh, if you've found a sliver of light in the darkness, if there was this moment of hope that you were able to grasp amid despair and how you held on to it. So feel free to share those stories as well. And we have phone calls coming in. Let me go to Heidi in San Jose. Hi, Heidi. Thanks for waiting. Hi there. Um, I actually had a question for Ashley. Uh, my mom, she went through something similar, but different. My father was a, my grandfather was a rapist and he raped his daughter, my aunt. Unfortunately, so many times she had children by him and his best friend that was around our house or their house all the time um, was a molester who ended up marrying that aunt, um, but also molested my mom. And this, these crimes occurred, you know, um, probably in the early, like late, um, I'd say the sixties maybe. And at that time you didn't say anything. And you, like you mentioned, you can't get nodded and wrapped up with family, but my mom still has a lot of mental health issues and she's a beautiful writer. And I've been trying to get her to actually write about it, but her family wants her to continue to stay silent. They say it's not her pain. And I was just wondering, since you are a writer and you did make it through that process, if you could share a little insight, maybe a little advice on, I'm sure there was times where it was very, very hard for you to write it, but if at the end, if 
if it was helpful for you or, you know, anything like that that I could pass along to my mother would be greatly appreciated. Oh, my gosh, Heidi, I'm so sorry for, for what your mother and her family have gone through and, and that you have to share a story um, like that. Ashley Ford, I don't know if you have any thoughts for Heidi. I do. Um, first of all, I want to reiterate that that I'm so sorry that that happened in your family. And I think that is a legacy in a lot of families. Um, it is a legacy in mine as well um, in a few different ways and on both sides of my family. Here, nobody wanted me to write this book. Nobody in my family wanted me to write it. Um, they did not try to stop me. They didn't get it in my way. Some of them trusted me, but nobody wanted me to do it. And the way that I was able to do it, knowing that nobody really wanted me to, was to remember that my story, the things that affect me, the things that my parents said to me, um, the things that other adults said or did to me, the things anybody did or said to me are part of my story. And my story can't be somebody else's secret. That's not my job. I don't have to hide my story or hide my life in order to keep other people's secrets. I believe in privacy and keeping what is sacred, sacred, because you are proud that it belongs to you and you don't want it to belong to the rest of the world, that's fine. Secrets are about shame and shame is corrosive. Shame hurts everything around it. So I would say it doesn't have to be something she writes and ever shares with anybody ever if she doesn't want to but it is absolutely something that she can write. Her story belongs to her. Well, well Heidi, yeah, I, I don't know if you, you, sounds like Heidi, you have a reaction. <laughs> uh, just thank you so much. I'm, um, your tears trying to stop, but um, I really just want to say, I thank you for your perspective and I agree with you and you put it in great words that um, I can communicate to her. It's just, this is a continuous open wound in our family and um, it's very dif a very difficult situation. Um, so just thank you so much. Well, Heidi, it's no thank problem. Thank Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for calling. Thank Heidi. you. I wrote it all down. <laughs> in in many ways, Ashley Ford, you responded to this other listener's comment. This listener writes, what reactions have you had from your family members and other people in your stories after publishing them? Did they remember the events differently? Were they okay with how you represented their stories as a writer? Do those reactions even matter to you? Um, so in some ways you've answered that. I don't know if there's anything you want to add. I would just say that, you know, I, I want to be clear and I try to be clear in a lot of cases that, you know, I don't have the kind of relationship with either of my parents where I would have looked to them to truly approve whether or not I could do something. I wanted to ask them about it. I wanted to talk to them about it because I wanted to do it in a way that showed them that I did love them and I respected them, but I've never been good at anybody telling me what to do. And that's not something that's different today. Um, and I just don't have the kind of relationship where it's like my mom or dad would stop calling me or, or we would not be okay anymore. You know, it's, um, we were just never that close in the yeah. first place. At one point, you do talk about how your father sort of, quote, 
gave you permission, not that you needed it, um, but what mm -hmm. did that do in terms of being able to write your truth? Honestly, I looked at it as a vote of confidence from him. I looked at it as proof that he trusted me to tell my story, that he trusted me as an authority on my own story. And that should I choose to tell my own story, that he would stand behind that, that he would stand with me in that. And that's a fantastic vote of confidence to come from someone. And, you know, it, I don't think of it as something that, um, that was like, I wasn't going to do it until he said you should do it or that you can do it. Um, or that I would have not done it if he had said no. It's more so that like, it means the world to me that he had had such little interaction with me in real time, but whatever he saw gave him the impression that I could do this right. We're talking with writer and podcast host Ashley C. Ford. Her new memoir is Somebody's Daughter. Ford has written or guest edited for The Guardian, Elle, BuzzFeed, Slate, New York Magazine, Allure, and The New York Times. Ford has hosted the Chronicles of Now podcast, the HBO Companion podcast, Lovecraft Country Radio, and MasterCard's Fortune favors the bold, among so many other things. Like if I listed them all, then it would take us past the break. Um, but if you have comments or questions or reactions to what you're hearing Ashley Ford talk about, please call us 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with writer Ashley C. Ford, who has written a new memoir titled Somebody's Daughter. And you, our listeners, are with us and can join the conversation at 866-733-6786 at forum at kqed.org. That's our email address. Or also post on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Ashley Ford, you have this wonderful epigraph at the beginning of your book um, by the Japanese poet Izumi Shikibu. That, uh, that goes like this, although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. And it, I couldn't, I mean, it, there are a lot of, you know, parallels or there, this epigraph, of course, encapsulates so much of the core, I think, of your book. But I also couldn't help but, but notice the, the house part of it tied to the way you begin your book, where you talk about your mom saying you can always come home. And I, I was almost wondering if when your mother said it, it almost felt like she was inviting you into that quote, ruined house again. Yes, absolutely. That's what it felt like. Um, I 
once I didn't live with my mother anymore, once I moved away and we were primarily apart, I realized how much more peaceful my life was. It just got incredibly peaceful in a way that terrified me at first (laughs) and then became a beautiful, comforting realization that I could be in a room alone and nobody was going to come in and ask me what I was doing and I better have an answer and it better not just be like sitting here thinking or daydreaming or something like that because that could turn into a whole thing. And just having the freedom to be quiet (laughs) for long amounts of time was so healing for me. Like it was, I think the beginning of healing before I even realized that that's what I was doing. And coming home and being back in the middle of what felt like chaos was terrible for me. It was overstimulating. It was exhausting. Um, It made me sad. And I wasn't allowed to feel that way Mm. around my family or in my mother's home. So it, it just wasn't safe for me. Why was that sort of initial peacefulness terrifying? Oh, because it was just unfamiliar. Mm. When you finally have quiet and you finally have a moment to not just like hear the quiet, but also kind of hear yourself, like actually having to sit and, and hear your thoughts and hear what's going on inside you. Um, it's terrifying because there are all these, these feelings, honestly, and that's really what they are, just feelings that you're so used to being able to like push down because you only need to push it down for a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes before you're going to be distracted by something else anyway, or you have to go do something or somebody comes in or a favorite show comes on or you have practice or rehearsal or something. And then all of a sudden you have that time and you don't, you can't sustain that kind of muted emotional response to life. And now you have to start figuring out not just what these feelings are, but where they come from. And that is terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Let me go to caller Lori in San Jose. Hi, Lori. Hi, is this Nina? Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I've got to tell you, this is the best free therapy I've ever gotten. <laughs> I love your writer. I love your writer. No, and I'll just make it real simple. But I'm, um, I was an incest. I am an incest survivor. My sister also was my father. And when you're talking about shame, um, I've done a lot of just research and therapy. And uh, I feel there's trauma and there's pain and there's shame. You know, and they're so huge and how the the amount of havoc they wreak in our lives. I'm 63, you know, and I kind of feel like, you know, I'm not a grandmother. I, I didn't have children. There's these, you know, really major things I didn't do. And a lot of it just goes back to um, feeling unsafe. Because when you have a, especially your father, and, and he was a patriarch, um violate you in that way um it just it shakes your world up 
And but I am coming to terms with it slowly, but it is very hard. And I can say I'm I'm I I can't really say I'm an incest survivor. I think I'm a work in progress. <laughs> but you know what? I don't want to start crying because what you're saying, and I'm gonna get your book. Um, it's just it's so deep and it's so honest and it's so loving. And I think. I have a drinking issue, and it stems, from what I've heard statistically, a lot of women that are alcoholics um, are are trying to survive from sexual abuse. Hmm. It's very nasty. Well, Laurie, I'm I'm so glad you're finding this conversation therapeutic, and I really appreciate your honesty, and am so sorry to hear that that happened to you. You know, it's I, I do think I am a spiritual person, and I, I'm not a Bible thump, thumper, but I believe in Jesus Christ. And so I do think there's a bigger picture, you know, that we don't always see. I think my father was probably molested. But he, he made a comment, and I actually had, I lived with them for eight years near his death, my mom and my father. I, my life had just fallen apart, and um, I had to move home, something you don't want to do at you know, 52, but I had to do it. And we got re-traumatized by him, not by molestation, but just his, he's highly narcissistic. Mm. Wow. So it's just been a I'm, hard road. You no, know, yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, Ashley Moore, did you want to say something really quick? I just wanted to also say that I'm really sorry that that happened to you. And I'm sorry about the way that that trauma and shame has affected your life. But I also believe that um, what the saddest part when you say that you didn't talk about it then that people just didn't talk about these things and you know I it makes me sad because that pain is not supposed to be carried by one person or even two people you know part of the reason why I wrote this book and part of the reason why I share my story is because I don't want anybody out there to ever feel as alone as I did when these things were happening to me. And I want people to know that, you know, we absolutely um, are not alone in these experiences. It's a it's an epidemic of abuse uh, in the world against yeah. people with young bodies. And I just, I, I want us to know we're not alone because I think that fact in and of itself gives us the strength to move forward in our lives as greatly affected as we are by our experiences. I mean, you really did carry it alone because you didn't tell your mom about the rape at 13 um, by someone you went to school with, someone who was your you know, boyfriend and kind of like a, a, a middle school sweetheart. I mean, to carry yeah. that alone and to try to process it in this isolated way it's just very hard to, I, I don't know, I just, I, I really feel for you in that, in that process. What happened when you did finally tell your mom and what made you do that? You know, I hadn't told her partly for so long because um, like I said, we've never been especially close. And also I, I deeply worried that her reaction would be further traumatizing um, for mm-hmm. me or possibly for um, my siblings, um, just my family in some capacity. 
when I finally did tell her it was because I knew for sure that I was going to write this book. I knew that I was going to write about these things that um, creatively I was in this place where I, I think anybody who makes things know that knows that sometimes um, the things are telling you <laughs> what to make. Like sometimes you don't always get a choice when you sit down to write like what comes out. We think we have more choice than we do. And, and this subject preoccupied me. And so I, I didn't want her to read something randomly and find out. I wanted her to hear it from me. That felt like the most respectful thing to do. And her reaction was actually really affirming because um, not only did she say that she was sorry that that had happened to me, but she, and she believed me, which was big. Mm. Um, but she also said to me, you know, I was crazy back then. You know, it was really the first time that my mom acknowledged that my childhood had been affected by her rage and by her anger. Yeah. One of the things that I, you told, or you said, I believe it was in a New York Times piece, was that, you know, amidst all the reasons you could see the world darkly, there is something that allows you to see magic anyway. And if you can hold on to that, you can hold on to yourself. What does holding on to those slivers of light to that, to that magic, what does that look like? It means noticing them and seeking them out. You know, um, I think children naturally make a lot of that around themselves. Um, and if you can spend time with children, um, I think that that's a great way to pick up on those things and to remember who you've been and how you've been in your life. I think that, you know, the magic is in noticing your own sense of awe and wonder and not thinking of that as something that is childish understanding that that is part of your humanity. Humans are made to play at least a little bit. Like it's, it's, it's part of the function of our biology. It's part of the function of our emotional and mental health is to play, to actually play. Yeah. And playing is not just about moving. It's not exercising. It's about joy. And I think the more yeah. joy we cultivate in our lives, the better, the easier it is to hold on to ourselves. It is so much that holding on to that I was so struck by. It's that you do have to, you can notice it, but you also have to let it in. Like you have to let it be something that you allow yourself to feel, even if it makes you vulnerable. Um, and that's a really yes. hard thing, but but you it, it takes effort to hold it. And, and I think that that's a really powerful sentiment. We're talking with Ashley C. Ford, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I want to talk to you a little bit more about your writing. You were talking about when you sit down, you don't really know what's going to come out sometimes or what you need to, mm -hmm. to put down. What What is your ideal writing environment? Oh man, I mean, there's my ideal writing environment and then there's where I've had to write so far. Um, but I know that my ideal writing environment, uh, first of all, has a closed door. Um, need a door I can close in my ideal situation. A, 
big desk. I mean, not big in terms of like tall, but just long. Like I, I want like when you went to lunch at school, those long lunch tables, I wish I had a desk that was that long. Um, lots of light and, and plants and soft places to sit and candles because I light a candle before I start writing um, whenever I can. And just something that makes me feel really safe and really cozy, um, probably temperature controlled because your girl doesn't do great in the cold. <laughs> well, this listener writes, BIPOC writers are often expected to write about trauma and disadvantages. Why are you able to write about those things without it feeling like you're feeding into that, without it feeling reductive or expected? Because I allowed every person who shows up in my book, I did my absolute best, including myself, um, to show their full humanity. Um, it's not scandalous. It's not sensationalized. It is hard times at times from a child's perspective. Um, and I think that... <sighs> I think that it's not that people don't necessarily want to read any more books where black folks or people of color in general are going through hard things. I think it's that people are tired of reading stories where um, those hard things have fallen into tropes and the trope has been centralized to the detriment of the subject's humanity or the trope has been centralized in a way that is to the detriment of the book or the literature because there were much more interesting places to go and we didn't because we wanted to give people a familiar feel good, we shall overcome story. Mm. I didn't wanna do that. I think that there is hope in my story um, because there is hope in me, but I don't believe that my story is in any way adherent to the tropes that actually dehumanize the people who I'm rooting for the most. This listener writes, how did you learn to embrace joy? Would you say it's an antidote to what you experienced as a child or something that coexists with other parts of your life? It coexists. It's, you know, I, I think what I've done is embrace reality. And reality includes complex emotions and complex experiences. Um, having uh, a book be a New York Times bestseller feels fantastic. It is also terrifying. It's my first book. I'm wow, that's super right. scared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty scary at the same time. And the only reason that I am not losing it or freaking out about it is because I can accept that I can be really excited and happy and proud of myself while also experiencing some self-doubt and being a little scared of what this means and also accepting that I can't know what it means and I can't decide what it means. All I can do is continue to do my work and do it my way and hope that people continue to like it and support me. But if they don't, I still got me. And luckily, by the time I finished this book, I figured out that that was enough. 
Did I read right that you just moved back to the Midwest, that you moved to Indianapolis from Brooklyn? I did. I moved back to Indianapolis in November. Why? And what's that been like to go back to the Midwest? It, I came back. I Honestly, I'd want to come back, wanted to come back for a really long time. And I, I came back because my husband let me, <laughs> because he finally said yes. And so we moved back as soon as we possibly could so that he couldn't change his mind. <laughs> and it's been great. It's been fantastic. We are around friends and family and people we love. And our chocolate lab has a yard to run around in. And we're hoping to, you know, buy a home here next year. Um, you know, fingers crossed, the market is wild, but, you know, we're adventurers, so we'll see what happens. So this is it. This is where you want to stay, huh? Yeah, um, home was calling me back. And I, I do not pretend to know the future, but I know that I'm happy right now. And I plan to stay for as long as it feels good. Well, I love this thread of home through this conversation. Ashley Seaford, congratulations on your first book. So great to talk with you about it. Thank you so much for your time, Mina. It's called Somebody's Daughter, a memoir. Blogator has produced this segment. Thank you to our guests for sharing their stories and questions and comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.